Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network, and we are joined today by Philip Mansell. He is a trustee for the Society for Court Studies in England and the president of the Research Center of the Chateau de Versailles in France. And we're we're joined today in order to discuss his new book, King of the World, The Life of Louis XIV. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. It's a pleasure. Hello, Ian. Well, this is a, as they often refer to it these days, as a doorstop of a book, but it is a one-volume history of the times of Louis XIV and, of course, very much his day-to-day life uh, from beginning to end. And so this is a unusual history because it combines, in my mind, it combines uh, a concern for not only the personal life on a nitty gritty detail, but also the much uh, larger world in which Louis lived. Uh, what are you hoping to do with this biography that perhaps earlier biographies haven't done? Well, I want to take him out of Versailles and show that actually he knew France very well. He's deeply concerned with every country in Europe the Ottoman Empire, Poland, Sweden, Spain. He spends 10 years trying to make his grandson king of Spain. And he's interested in the world. He founds Louisiana. He's interested in Canada. He sends fleets to um, Brazil or Africa or India. And he's a really global person long before today's globalization. I think almost every minute of his working life, he's thinking of French expansion and French links with the outside world. So he has an extraordinarily long period of rule. He's born in 1638, and by the age of five, his father has died, Louis XIII. And so he becomes king, well, technically king, and he has a regency period, and then he comes of age, but he rules until 1715, an extraordinarily long period uh, for a country to be associated with one person, right? Yes. Uh, I I think Elizabeth II is about to beat him, or may have beaten him, in fact. It is very, very long, and he never lost his appetite for rule. He really loved being king. He loved the splendor, the parties, the hunting, and he also loved hard work till in after fact, midnight does, sometimes. Right. In fact, he's doing that hard work almost up until the day he dies, right? Yes, that's correct. And and also parading in front with his troops and showing himself to the public and receiving people in audience. He loved what he called the métier de roi, the profession of being king. So, as you said a moment ago, you wanted to take him out of Versailles, but at the same time, you've devoted several chapters to Versailles, the place, and his life there. So this is very much a part of his life. He seemed to love the countryside, right? Yes, he loved the countryside. He, w- he loved gardening, for example, and he went out gardening when he's over 60 
um, when it's freezing in January or, or February, when his own beloved dogs, it was too cold for them to go out. They refused to go out, but the king was tougher than any animal at court. And he loved hunting and shooting, as was traditional for monarchs at that time. You but mentioned Versailles, his dogs. Yes, yes, go ahead. His dogs, he does portraits of his dogs, not of his servants or his courtiers, or, or not so many of his family, but his dogs are right there in his private apartments. And, and Versailles fascinates me. I'm a specialist in courts and royal courts. And I think Versailles has been overseen as sort of parties and works of art. But of course, fundamentally, it's a working palace. It's the main job center of France. It's a military headquarters. It's a government headquarters. There are ministries, there are troops. Above all, there are these hundreds of petitioners coming in, pestering people for jobs. So I want to talk about Versailles in greater detail in a moment, but before that, he comes to Versailles really, and he starts to change it and create the Versailles we know today in the 1660s and 70s. But uh, before that, he begins his um, involvement in politics very early as a teenager. And so he, he comes from, as you describe in uh, the early chapter, the early chapters, he is coming from a period where it's not always easy to be the king. Uh, you face potential threats for assassination. His, some of his uh, ancestors did. And so he comes at a time of, when he's born in the 1630s, of religious strife and conflict. And that really marks most of his reign. Yes, and, and profound discontent with absolute monarchy and with the, his mother's favorite minister, Cardinal Mazarin, who is Italian and totally corrupt. And there's a war on and France has to pay for the war. And so taxes are going up. And anyway, there's a tremendous tradition of independence by cities, by provinces, by great nobles. There could have been a parliamentary monarchy in France as there was in England. England also had its tendency to absolute monarchy, but that didn't triumph or didn't apparently triumph. And so Louis, the young Louis, when he's 10 or 12, he's seeing horrors, his mother being insulted, the crowds trooping through his bedroom, uh, the court going from city to city in France with the cities shutting their gates in his face because they don't want the king and the court who will cost them a lot of money. And anyway, they prefer the princes. So this is a far cry, though, from a popular revolution or what will become something of a popular revolution in 1789. It's, uh, well, is, it's it, certainly... is, is it? Because some people okay. ask this question. There was a lot of popular discontent. Pamphlets, sexual pamphlets against Anne of Austria, his mother, like those against Marie Antoinette. But I think there's such a close relationship between France and England then. And the French were so horrified by the English Civil War and the execution of Charles I in 1649 that it made them hold back. And, and everything could be blamed on Mazarin anyway. And that's very convenient for the, the young king. He, the, as you noted, uh, the taxes and uh, the concerns that people have with provisions or um, sustenance, all of these problems are laid at the foot of the adults in the room and the young king escapes unscathed. Yes, the young king escapes unscathed. Moreover, he's very 
beautifully behaved, very handsome, very decorative. He dances well in public at a time when dance was the equivalent of gym today. Everyone says, oh, even if we didn't know he was king, he looks like the king the moment he enters a room and so on and so forth. And he's young and apparently innocent. Of course, he's not innocent at all. He adores Mazarin. He's observing everything and remembering everything. So his father dies when he's uh, quite young. Uh, are there any, is there any sense that he remembered his father at all? Or uh -huh. does it, not is there any? Not re really, but there's two interesting things. He makes Versailles his home, and that was really his father's favorite house. So it may be a tribute in a way to his father. And he remembers his father's dedication of France by a vow to the Virgin Mary, giving the crown of France to the Virgin. And at the end of his life, Louis XIV fulfills this vow and make, puts up a statue of his father in Notre Dame. Of course, he's very close to his mother though. And as you mentioned, she's one of the quote unquote loves of his life. Um, and, and why is it that they are so close? What is it that makes them so close? And I think he was one of the loves of her life. I think she devoted herself to her sons in a way not many other mothers did. She didn't get on with her husband at all. She had plotted against him. And they, I think they, they had the same fairly similar characters, very keen on dignity and decorum and court splendor. So they have meals together, which often monarchs didn't at that time. And they both loved Mazarin, this very um, controversial figure who nevertheless saw the French monarchy through a, a time of terrible turbulence. He's really the pilot who weathered the storm. And Mazarin, they, uh, they have this very close relationship uh, between Mazarin and uh, Anne of Austria um, that's apparently a love affair after the king has died. Yes, Is that I right? think I think probably at times, probably to begin with, because there is this report that there was a private passage connecting Anne of Austria's apartment to Mazarin's apartment in the Palais Royal. Unfortunately, the palace has been re-adapted re since, so we can't inspect for ourselves. Um, but I think architecture says everything really, but, but it, it probably stopped and later they leave the Palais Royal. But they certainly had secret codes and secret signs of love with A and J embracing and so on. So during his youth, he lives really in Paris uh, with the seat of government, or at least the seat of the royal household being at primarily in Paris at the Louvre, right? Yes. And, 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 he, and he essentially he, leaves Paris after his mother dies. Yes, I think it... I think there are personal reasons we don't really understand. 1666 is the real break. There's a wonderful port picture of him and all his guard and household crossing the Pont Neuf in front of the Louvre right this time, where he looks completely Parisian. And he sees Bernini, he brings Bernini from Rome to redo the Louvre. I mean, that's the act of a Parisian. Maybe it's his mother's death, maybe there's other reasons but it is very odd and it shows that he, he's both very grand and conventional, but he has unconventional sides. The Savoy ambassador in 1671, the February, 
when the last night he slept in Paris, the Savoy ambassador says, uh, the king has left Paris forever. And that's not many other monarchs never slept in their capital city again, least of all a city as attractive and vibrant as Paris. Right, and you mentioned that he only returns a, a, a few times over the next 45 years of his reign uh, from 1871. He dies in 1715, and basically he is living in other royal residences in, uh, in addition to uh, Versailles, which he's building and developing at this time. And Paris is in many ways kind of a distant uh, capital that's no longer a functioning governmental capital, or at least it seems to be ancillary to what government, uh, where government's really functioning, right? Yes, the branches of the government remain and ministers still usually kept a house in Paris and the law courts stay there and the foreign embassies. Um, and people spent a lot of time in the carriages between Paris and Versailles, and I've never found a single complaint about that, bizarrely. But he's very aware of what's happening in Paris. He gets these police reports about uh, riot, not riots, um, brawls in the streets or, or what people are getting up to in the Tuileries Gardens at night. And the king knows all this. So, so it's know. a separation, not a divorce. Right, and I know other authors have written about the extensive intelligence networks yes, uh, that yeah. existed for the crown. Uh, they really do have kind of a veritable, not quite a Soviet uh, or Nazi in scope, but nevertheless a, uh, a secret police force that's uh, very um, attentive to all kinds of details throughout the kingdom, especially in Paris. Yes. A agents everywhere and pay and people being paid or persuaded to spy in Versailles or elsewhere, servants observing and watching, and then paying people abroad to send reports to Paris and Versailles. It's, he's an information freak. He wants to know, he thinks he can know everything. And there's all these reports and dossiers building up, though um, often he was deceived. But well, he, so he, when there are bread riots in 1709, he knows immediately what's happening in Paris. And as you mentioned, one of his characteristics is he's in many ways a micromanager throughout his reign. Yes. Uh, that, perhaps that to is, his fault. Yes, that is one of his faults because generals in the field can't get on with it. They're reporting back to Versailles. They're not all of them, but most of them. And, and he, he Yes, he's overburdened with information and there's not much follow-up sometimes. So in looking back after reading your book and thinking about uh, his reign, one element of it that sticks out, of course, is the frequency of warfare. It reminds me of famously Thomas Hobbes, the British philosopher and one of the elder contemporaries uh, during his lifetime. He wrote that there are three reasons people engage in warfare. One is to gain territory, uh, sometimes it's defensive, uh, diffidence, uh, fear, and a preemptive war, and other times it's for glory. And it seems to me all three of those reasons apply at one time or another to Louis, but maybe a fourth reason is that he just, he enjoyed it. It was fun for him. Yes. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed going with his girlfriends, a grand siege, which doesn't waste French soldiers' lives too much. And then a grand entry into the conquered city with the 
municipal officials, of course, on their knees, offering up the keys of the city to the king whose hand stretches out from his gilded carriage. It's all very satisfying. But he's right in a way because Paris is ill-defended, as everybody knows, in 1940 and many other wars before that. And he wanted to push France's eastern frontier back. And he does a bit, not as much as he hoped, but he does push it back and he does fortify France's frontiers. So some of those fortified cities were still resisting German troops in 1940, in fact, and previous wars. But a lot is for glory. A lot is to say, I'm as good as Alexander the Great. Uh, the only limit to my conquest is my moderation and so on. And this is all enshrined in the Galerie des Glaces in Versailles. You mentioned he goes with his girlfriends. This is somewhat unusual. They take, uh, well, women have always accompanied troops into warfare, but uh, in terms of the level of the royal household uh, and hangers-on, as it were, royal hangers-on, there are quite a few of these. It's, it's really an entertainment for them. Yes, and to pay their court, a lot of ladies of the court, ladies-in-waiting, for example, would ask to accompany the um, royal party on a campaign and once they were coming back and they they had a terrible time because the provisions got lost or they had to um spend the night in a, in a farmhouse which they weren't used to and a lot of screams of complaint and as i pointed out this is nothing compared to what the husbands and brothers suffered on campaign most summers but he's he's really a whoop a woman's man. He loved the company of women as well as his girlfriends and his mother. And he's always with women. He sometimes invites 300 women to a ball and tells people he's got so many women to invite to, to a, a grand ball in Versailles. He himself personally makes room with his cane for women at a party if there's a crowd and people are misbehaving. This is all quite unusual. And there's this strange book published in 1673 with his monogram on the title page saying of the equality between the two sexes and the necessity to get rid of prejudices by somebody called Francois Poulain de la Barre. So they're aware of this great <laughs> ongoing battle between men and women for women's rights. And in fact, the French court was, a, was dynamite from the point of view of gender, because the queen had a household almost as big as the king, sometimes bigger. And the king's mother was often more important than him when he was young. And the first book defending women's rights is by a lady in waiting in 1400, Christine de Pizan. So it's all quite unusual. And this tradition of French women writers flourishes at court and his second wife, Madame de Maintenon, is fervent for female education. And the king pays for l'école de Saint-Cyr near Versailles, where poor noble young girls were educated. And he loves women so much he can't stick with just one. He has quite a few illegitimate yes. children and they have their own households too. And uh, yes. so there's a, there's a great deal of open, it seems, respect for these uh, children. Yes, he's penalizing illegitimacy in order to raise money. There's a tax on bastards, but his own bastards, of course, are glorified 
it's part of his strategy, I think, of raising the royal family and dynasty above everybody else. And he loves them. He wants his illegitimate daughters, the Duchesse de Bourbon and the Duchesse d'Orléans, to be near his apartment when he's traveling. And, yep. and in the end, he makes his illegitimate sons eligible to succeed to the crown, which that is something new. That's personal to him, which nobody else had dared do. So there is this extensive household. One of the elements that you go into great detail about is his daily life and how his personal life is, ex he's in many ways, uh, we would use the term perhaps a workaholic today. Yes. And he has this incredibly invasive interaction with all of the courtiers. Uh, ex can you explain some of this? I, I had this, uh, it's a perhaps a crude reference, but I think of the Mel Brooks, <laughs> uh, it's good to be the king character when uh, from his comedy, uh, History of the World. And I thought, well, I don't know that it's all that good to be the king. He is constantly besieged, uh, even on his walk from one point of the uh, Versailles to another. He, he is constantly besieged in terms of people seeking favors or dispensations of some kind. So could you explain just kind of a an average day for Louis the Fourteenth. Yes, he he wakes up. He gets up about eight. He hears prayers. He's sort of rubbed down. He doesn't go to a bath except with his girlfriend Madame de Montespan when he's young. And then there is the levee, or which means the rising, when he sees the most important and intimate courtiers and ministers if they've got important news. And then he. He, he has a very light breakfast. He, incredibly, even when he goes to the lavatory, he sees people. They had something called the brevet d'affaires or the brevet of affairs. And he was on a sort of commode. It's, I mean, it's something unbelievable to us. And then he goes in state through several rooms to mass. So during that procession, People can present petitions, or he can nod to people or see who's around. Then he has mass. The finest music in Europe is in his royal chapel because he personally uh, auditions singers and musicians. He's, a, he's a, a maniac for music also. That's about half an hour. And then he'll have a council meeting, really the most important people in his life after his very closest family members were his ministers. And sometimes he interrupts that with riding, hunting, or gardening, if the weather's good. And then he, he comes back to Versailles or Fontainebleau, the other great palace where he is every autumn, or Compiègne, north of Paris, where he is sometimes in the spring. And there's more meetings with ministers and senior officials. And finally, there's supper at around 10 p.m., Probably there's music during supper and a procession of people going past and interesting people. For example, the latest traveler back from Siam or from Mississippi or from Canada or from Africa will talk to the king and he'll uh, use them like a sponge, absorbing information. And then maybe there's a party, maybe there's card games or he chats to his daughters 
or the ladies of the court, or there's a, a, an informal concert. Sometimes even the king would sing along with the ladies of the latest song. He really he lives bathed in music. And then he finally goes to bed around midnight. And that's just one day uh, when he's just... not on campaign. This is really his yes. regular life. Yes. Now, of course, as, as we mentioned, warfare is kind of a constant of his reign. He's remembered for many of the wars in which he engaged and started. So this is one of the debates that you address throughout the book, especially at the end when you're summarizing his reign. How does he leave France versus how France exists at the time that he takes over in terms of uh, the uh, consequences of his constant warfare or frequent warfare? Well, unlike Napoleon, he does leave France larger than he found it. Dunkirk, which he personally inspects, he bought it from Charles II, Flanders, half of Flanders, Alsace and Franche-Comté, the bitter France bordering Switzerland. Three important acquisitions, three great cities, Lille, Dunkirk, and Strasbourg. And these conquests last, they're still French today. But apart from that, by his wars and his brutal bombardments of cities, even when he's not at war like Genoa or Brussels or Heidelberg, he does unite most of Europe against him. He inherited France, which was allied to almost everybody, thanks to Mazarin's diplomacy. And when he leaves, France has only about two real friends, Sweden and the Ottoman Empire and Switzerland. And why is this? He's driven or he's, he's persecuted the Protestants who help unite Europe against him. He's, his territorial demands have united Europe and the brutality of his armies devastating the Rhineland. And through the reaction to his policies, England has become a world power with the Bank of England, partly founded by French refugee Protestants. Piedmont and Prussia have become much stronger in reaction to his expansion. And Austria has become much stronger. So relatively in the balance of power in Europe, France is far weaker. And the age-old rivalry between England and France, in many ways, it seems to be abated because of his personal connection to the Stuart family during uh, much of his reign. But at the same time, this seems to be one of his biggest mistakes. So his, his somewhat perhaps strange uh, loyalty to the Stuart family, can you explain this and how, how it affects his own country? Yes. In the 1650s, when Mazarin was in charge, there was no loyalty to the Stuarts. They, they had an alliance with Cromwell. But in the 1680s, I think as Louis becomes more pious with age, he gets God. And James II, his Stuart cousin, is a very fervent Catholic. So he thinks it's for the good of his soul. He thinks he's saving people's souls. He thinks he has a direct line to God. And I think perhaps even more than his relationship, that explains his support for James II and his Catholic son, James III. And it is a mistake because it drives England to be more anti-French than before. And the quite very good relations in the 1670s and early 1680s are a thing of the past, really. 
though he does hold his own in some colonial wars, an expedition against Quebec is defeated. And of course, he, he annexes the whole Mississippi Valley, but he doesn't get enough French settlers to make it truly French. And one of the other problems uh, that is wholly, it seems to be his own doing, is his treatment of French Protestants and his famous revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Can you uh, give us the background of that? Yes, on the whole, Protestants had been quite well treated by Richelieu and Mazarin, two Catholic cardinals. And in the early reign of Louis the of Louis Fourteenth, also, he trusted Turenne, who was at the beginning of Protestant. He had Protestant artists at court, but he's convinced that it's going to be for their good, this forbidding of all Protestant worship, and in fact, forced conversions, rapes, murders, and much else, which drive Protestants to cross the Alps on foot or to take boat to England, or in the end about 150,000 leave, perhaps more. Why? There are two worldly reasons why. A, he wanted to please the French Catholic Church, which voted their own taxes to the crown, and he's struggling for control of it with the Pope. So they were anti-Protestant. They felt rivalry and com competition from Protestants. Some French people liked Protestant services. So they welcomed this and put pressure on the king with the assembly and the archbishops, the Archbishop of Paris. And perhaps more important, the European dimension is always vital to Louis XIV. And the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I, has just defeated the Turks at the Siege of Vienna, 1683. Huge prestige, glorious conquests. The Austrian armies are expanding into Hungary and beyond. Catholic Europe admires them and turns towards them. So what can the King of France do to go one better? and to prove he's the better Catholic monarch. He's the supreme Catholic monarch in Europe. Have the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, persecute the Protestants much more than the Austrian emperor persecuted his Protestants, who, who were there, particularly in, in Hungary, and show that he is the true eldest son of the church. That may have been an argument, but above all, it's his feeling that he's doing God's work. Now, one of uh, the popular elements of his reign that everyone, even if they know nothing else about Louis XIV, is his association with this uh, Sun King uh, in, uh, symbolism. Um, where did this derive from? And was it really a facet of how people at the time, his subjects, thought of him? Yes, he adopts it in 1662 formally. Other monarchs had had, had used sun symbols since ancient Rome and uh, his father-in-law, Philip IV of Spain, had occasionally used it. But he has it as a symbol. It's just in the tradition of the French monarchy, which has always had magnificent visual propaganda. He has this symbol and also this famous motto, nec pluribus impar, not unequal to many or to more. I think his subjects loved it. They're, they're not particularly impressed by the sun image. It's the fact that their king is at war and he's conquering Europe 
And there are statues put up all over France showing him as a warrior, as a Roman emperor, as, a, as the always victorious or incredible uh, mottos, uh, always victorious, always extending territory, our great king. That's what many of his subjects liked, although there were always critical spirits saying all this is wicked and particularly from the church, it's, it's not his, his um, lackey or his flunky in any way. There are very critical sermons to his face, denouncing girlfriends, denouncing the gap between rich and poor and denouncing war. You know, that's another point that you make, um, this, these criticisms, not only from the church, but from others within the court. There seem to be, on the inside of the court, a permissiveness that was not allowed to the, uh, to the subjects beyond the court. And that included things like a, a degree, which was surprising to me, a degree of what we would think of as free speech. Yes. And I think it's a specific French tradition, which is what makes the French court so literary, so wonderful, so sharp. These very wicked memoirs, sort of like Saint-Simon on Louis XIV or earlier, Comines on Louis XI and many, many others. I think it's because the court is, is in fact, uh, uh, the version of a parliament. It's where things are discussed and opinions are formed. And you might be bowing very low to the king in public in the state apartments, but in your private apartment, meeting friends, you're laughing at him sometimes. And it's interesting that some of Mazarin's nieces with whom he'd grown up, like, Olympe, Comtesse de Soissons, and others, they, they are critical of him later in the reign. But he, he as the king, is also aware of this criticism. It's not, it's yes. not all secret. It's not kept from him. So there's this, uh, this kind of sense of, of what we might call a nascent liberalism within the court itself. Yes, I think it, it was always there, though he makes a few remarks, I know my decision won't meet with everybody's approval or so, something like that. And he has this cabinet noir intercepting people's letters, so he knows what people are saying. Um, I think he just accepted it as part of life, though the real critic, very important and interesting man, Fenelon, Archbishop of Cambrai, who'd been the tutor of his grandson, the heir to the throne, the Duc de Bourgogne, he is banished from court when he becomes more critical. But he publishes this novel, Les Aventures de Télémaque. It's published in Holland. Everybody reads it. It's a bestseller. And it's criticizing luxury and extravagance, i.e. Versailles. And so is this a sign, you know, this freedom, perhaps it's a tradition he feels he must live with, but is it also a sign of the confidence of the monarchy that it's really... Uh, powerful enough that it can withstand this internal criticism? Yes, I think that's a very good point. It is so, it is confident. It feels it can. It's just part of life. It can't control the book trade completely. Books will always be published in Rouen or somewhere far from the king's officials. And maybe it's better to know what people are saying than not to know. Yes, it is a very confident institution until 1789, really. If it, if it wasn't confident, Louis XVI wouldn't have summoned the States General. So another popular legend about Louis XIV is his claim that he is the state. 
Um, does he ever actually say that? Because I don't recall reading that literally. See, he seems to say something on his deathbed very close to that. But yes, he 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 doesn't say that. He has a strong sense of the state, as all kings of France did, that there is this machine. The king is only the first servant of the state. And on his deathbed, he says, I am dying, but the state goes on. You must serve the state. It is a huge government machine with ministries, with law courts, with many other institutions, as it had been really since the 16th century. Secretaries of state. So he has this extensive reign. He will try to secure his family's future at the very in the very last months of his uh, life, but it's kind of touch and go from there because the the nephew of uh, his nephew is uh, certainly ambitious. And so, can you explain what are some of the conundrums for the future of his uh, great grandson now? Um, he's had a lot of misfortune in his last years with his son and grandson dying. And so he has to deal with these unanticipated prospects for who's going to succeed him. Yes, there's his nephew, whom he doesn't entirely trust because he may have tried to become king of Spain in place of his grandson, his nephew, the Duc d'Orléans. There is his illegitimate son, the Duc du Maine, who has huge military power and wealth. And there is Philip V, his grandson in Spain, who has claims to the regency. And there is the Parlement of Paris, which wants to recover some of its legal rights. And he is worried because proof of that is that he ensures that the court, after he dies, moves to Vincennes, which is a medieval fortress you can still see east of Paris, i.e. it goes to somewhere that could be easily defended. But it, and he knows probably his provisions where Orléans would be guided by a council of regency and wasn't in fact appointed regent. He knew probably that they would be overthrown. He, he had set up in a way an explosive situation, but the Duc du Maine is in my opinion, the unsung hero of this situation with all his legal rights over the King's guard and the King's education. He more or less gives them up and accepts that he will be number two to the Duc d'Orléans. And so the assessment of his reign, we, we, you talked about the extension of French territory uh, but nevertheless, what are the connections with what will happen about 70 some years later with the end of the monarchy, uh, with the French Revolution? How, how does Louis XIV's rule or his example help pave the way, if it does, for what will eventually happen to Louis XVI? I think in two ways. First, his finances, huge government debt. He never gets to grips with the he does in the early reign when Colbert, his great minister of finance, is alive. But later, government debts spiral out of control and it's government debt and bankruptcy which leads to the calling of the States General and the, French, the beginning of the French Revolution. Louis XIV is partly responsible for that. Secondly, he increases the privileges and separateness of the nobility and the 
access of nobles to the crown at the expense of the legal nobility, the noblesse de robe and the bourgeoisie, who it had been much more relaxed in the reign of his father and in his own youth. But Louis XIV tightens the rules, possibly to please the nobles so they will serve him better. I'm not quite certain. And, and that also annoys opinion later and means that the French ruling class is not united when it's suddenly faced with a population in rebellion in 1789. And also this, thirdly, this fact that actually France is losing power in the European balance to Austria and Prussia, that weighs very heavily with public opinion and Russia. Louis XIV spurns Russia's attempts at alliance and remains loyal to Sweden, which really doesn't do France much good. So it's this slight sense of humiliation that England is the coming power. The British ambassador in Versailles is uh, insolent, hated by the courtiers, and really as insolent as the French ambassador used to be in Westminster. So one of the tropes about biographers is that they either love or hate their subject. Uh, what do you uh, think of that? And do you fall, where do you fall along the line for Louis XIV? Well, I would have loved to be invited to Versailles. Um, I would have done anything for that. But, and I think his art patronage, the opera, the music, the gardens is totally fascinating. And I think he, he could be incredibly charming. Everybody says nobody knew how to turn on the charm like the king. Um, they call it gracieuse. But it's the what surprised me when doing this life is the actual personal cruelty of the king to the horrific treatment of the Protestants, the bombarding of so many towns, including Catholic churches in those towns, although he tries to be a, such a good Catholic. And it's not just his war minister Louvois, because the same thing goes on after Louvois dies. And this really uh, possibly needs more investigation. French generals are horrified by the orders they receive to destroy Mannheim or Mainz or Heidelberg. They write letters about it. It's, it's a war machine that goes out of control. So I'm very divided about Louis XIV. So this is a, um, he's a complex personality, it seems to me, that uh, is, is much of, are much of the sources you note several times that he writes certain letters in his own hand. Are much of the sources that you're using to assess him and his character, how much of them would you say are reflections that you get from him himself versus what his courtiers and others are saying about him? Well, there's a lot from him himself. These marginal notes on ministers or police chiefs' reports and his his, his guide to Versailles, which he revised six or seven times, very dry style. They're always very dry. I, actually, I find that rather attractive because he, he's not trying for effect. He's just saying what he thinks. There's one very characteristic marginal note. His enemy is William III, the leader of Holland, who becomes King of England, with whom he, he's waging war. And once there was a rumor that he 
was dead, and there'd been terrific public rejoicings in Paris and in Versailles. Oh, the king's enemy is dead, our enemy is dead, and they lit fires and so on. Now, 10 years later, William III is really dying. And in advance, Louis XIV sends orders to his police officials and military officials, above all, prevent any popular demonstrations. So he doesn't want popular demonstrations, even against his own worst enemy. He fears demonstrations, he wants control, and he thinks in advance to prevent them happening. And I think that is very ca characteristic of him. He wants control, discipline, authority. And that pleased half of France. I mean, he, he wasn't really unpopular. And at the end, when people are sort of drinking and, and writing rude poems about him when he's being buried, it's really his the taxation that Horov, that they're complaining about, even more than his wars. Well, the book is King of the World, The Life of Louis XIV, and we've been joined today by its author, Philip Mansell. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ian. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you.